This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. I feel like I ought to have something catchier to say about it and keep running ideas in my head about how it's more about music than Christmas. Nothing's popping for me yet, and everything I've come up with so far sounds like I'm apologizing for my interest in Christmas music. Since that's not the message I want to send, I'll keep thinking this one over. If someone out there has marketing skills or can help me with a tagline, you can find me at alex at myspiltmilk.com or 12 Songs of Christmas on Facebook. Today's show is with San Francisco-based jazz vocalist Jackie Naylor. The jazz vocalist seems limiting. That's certainly where she started in the late 90s. And if you think jazz vocalist when you hear her new album, The Long Game, that makes sense. The players in her band bring jazz chops to their performances, but she veers into other musical lanes as well. And Jackie's innovation is what she likes to call acoustic smashing, which takes cues, as the phrase suggests, from mashups. For those songs, her band plays one famous song while she sings the melody of another standard over it. It began when she was asked to sing My Funny Valentine and couldn't imagine what was left for her to discover in the song. Instead, she recontextualized it and found new ideas, new openings, and signature concept. I talked to Naylor about her new album, The Long Game, and I'm going to use part of that conversation in the next week or two in a story at myspiltmilk.com. Today, we're going to talk about Naylor's Christmas album from 2007, Smashed for the Holidays. But first, I want to talk about Cascade's Cascade Christmas from 2017. I'm pretty omnivorous where Christmas music is concerned, and I've got a real soft spot for electronic Christmas music. The more electronic, the better. I love Moog, Analog, Synth Christmas. I like 8-bit, chiptune Christmas. And in 2017, I got into Cascade's Cascade Christmas. It's not as self-consciously alien and futuristic as some of my favorites, and if anything, it might be too normal. On the cover, DJ and producer Cascade looks as suave and well-dressed as the male vocalists of the early 60s did in their moment. But this is Christmas music for the chill-out lounge. The tempos are relaxed, the textures are smooth, and perhaps a little icy. He has female vocalists sing on many of the songs, and while the album lists eight different ones, they could all be two or three, just with different pseudonyms. The album is a Christmas wind-down, and that's one of the things I like about contemporary electronic music. It's so focused on function. Dubstep and the variations that have followed it sound the way they do, because the crazy textures feed the trips of the people in attendance. The hypnotic quality is similarly driven by the needs of the fans. Cascade isn't going that way, but for people feeling overwhelmed by the holidays, he has your back. My favorite track on the album is an anomaly. His version of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen features singer Deborah Fotheringham, who sings the song to the signature hook from Hall & Oates' Sarah Smile. That song could be thought of as proto-chill on its own, and it adds a melancholy twinge that seems perfectly suited to an introspective stare into the lights of the tree. We'll hear God Rest You Merry Gentlemen from Cascade Christmas, and we'll be back on the other side with Jackie Naylor. So first place to almost start all conversations these days is, you know, how have you handled the uh, quarantine? Delicately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as delicately as I can. I, I, um, I've tried to respect this time, you know, um, and 
realize that early on, I thought that it was only going to be for a couple of months. You know, I think we all were kind of misguided in that regard (laughs) Um, and uh, eagerly misguided. Right. I mean, I, I, um, so I started doing, I was determined to continue working for those couple months, what I thought would be those couple months. And so we started these home to home concerts um, back in May where a monthly concert that we uh, broadcast from home. Um, and we were determined not to repeat very many songs, you know, at all. So, um, we, again, we thought that would be a couple of months and that we'd be back out on tour in July or August, you know, at the latest. And, um, I came to realize recently now that we've done, you know, number 10 of those with the full band, usually it's just art and I, but number 10 we did with the full band. Um, you know, I, I realized, I think back, I was looking at my, pages about the about the set lists and I realized I started numbering them in around um October Ah, (laughs) you know ah. I'm like wow okay yeah we're really in this you know we're really in this for the long game so um so yeah that's how we've been handling it is um just trying to create as much as we can trying to show as much appreciation as possible to the fans um to to people who have supported us um and just by continuing to create you know to keep ourselves sane when the year started, had you planned to release an album last year? The Long Game was planned to be released actually in um, 3-20-2020, March 20th or 2020. And we recorded that album in the third quarter of 2019, oh. in September of 2019. So, um, yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. And we had a whole tour planned and, and you know, both here and uh, in the Europe and Asia, different tours. And, they, of course, they all got canceled. So we decided to kind of as a team, a PR team and distributor, we all decided, like, let's just postpone this. Again, we thought we'll postpone it till later in 2020. And then just as things rolled on, we decided, okay, let's release it in 2021. And now here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so it's lived up to its name. Yeah. So, so how did you... So how did you keep sane in the course of the last year? I've talked to a lot of musicians for, I mean, one of the reasons I asked that question was I've talked to a lot of musicians who released Christmas music last year and they talk about how the album was kind of a process, a, a, a product of a little bit stir crazy, a little bit just feeling a need to do something and need to sort of, you know, and talking about just how making music is normalizing and, you know, and so, you know, so, but you had a year where you weren't necessarily where, you know, the album was already done. So kind of, how did you, how did you stay sane last year? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that playing some of that music in the home to homes, you know, we tried to save kind of the big event per se for this last month with the release but we were kind of trickling that music. And so getting to vi- revisit that music um, felt really good, um, especially to revisit it in a new way as a duo, you know, or to go back back as a duo to kind of the um, beginnings, beginnings of almost all of our music is just Art and I. Um, so to go back to that and then to see what also was sort of inspired by that album. So I think, you know, I always think of an album as, you know, whether it's, uh, a regular album or a Christmas album, you know, that it's really a snapshot in time. Um, kind of, a, so I, sometimes I go back and listen to things and I'm like, wow, we really play that di- slightly different now. Or so, so, so getting, getting kind of into that, I think helped keep us sane, you know, um, and then that commitment in the home to home concerts to not repeat any of the songs or very few. I think we repeated five songs in the whole year and played about a hundred and something songs. So um, that was really fun, you know, to, to, again, go back to maybe songs from 20 years ago and go, okay, or requests. We took a lot of requests from people and to kind of really revisit those and put kind of what's going on around us into those songs, including the pandemic. I mean, how can you not? How can that not inform uh, what we were doing? And then writing. So we, we, we also wrote some new music during that time, continue to write during this time.
ground control the major town ground control to major town take your protein pills and put your helmet on ground control to major town Commencing countdown engines on Check ignition and may God's love be with you This is ground control to major town You really made the grade so I have to ask, what made you decide to do Space Oddity? That's an interesting story because it's a tune I always loved. You know, the first line is so iconic. You know, I mean, people just even half the time refer to it as Major Tom when right. they're requesting it, you know. Um, and Art and I recorded that as a duo several years ago, just as sort of a gift to fans. And it was strange because when I was singing it in the studio, I all of a sudden felt this real connection to him that I hadn't necessarily felt before. I mean, I dug the song and I liked him, but I didn't have this feeling about him. And then it was really only a few weeks after that that he he died. And I, I know, I'm not trying to say I know what that means, but I feel like... There was definitely when I sing that song now and when we recorded it with the band, I really feel like I'm singing that to him in a way and to loved ones lost and to, you know, can you hear me, Major Tom? And there's sort of this element of the tune that I've always loved where you're kind of looking at life from afar and and making some sort of trying to connect with this you know, our lives from a different perspective, whatever that different perspective you know means to you but um so that that's in a way that tune has become very uh at first it was just a cover and then it became something quite personal feeling to me oh cool yeah one of the things i thought was really interesting is is making choices i mean i mean that's kind of one of the most obvious but when you're is picking a song that is so signature to bowie and so it's not like you were taking a song that he wrote, but that it doesn't have like Bowie persona st- uh, stamped so massively on it. And so, you know, I was kind of wondering about what you think about when you take on, I mean, you did Losing My Religion, the same thing. It's such a massive song for R.E.M. It's not like you, you know, picked a, you know, third song on the second side of, you know, of Fables of the Reconstruction. It was like, you know, go straight at one of their biggest songs. And I was wondering how you think through taking on a piece of work that is so well-known and in, 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 sorry, in those cases is so central to the way people think about those artists. Such a great question. Um, I feel like... I feel like I'm very fortunate in two two regards. One is that since I started out as a jazz singer and still consider myself a jazz singer, and that jazz singing in itself is, at the start of it anyway, from my first two albums, you know, is really about standards. What is a standard? So, I mean, we could have that conversation all day, right? Like, what's a standard? And that, you know, the way I always have tried to approach a standard is, you know, especially a well-known standard, is what can we say differently about it? How do I bring up, how do we bring us to it? And not really, so, so that I didn't have that sense of taboo maybe about like, you can't do a Bowie song or an REM tune. What are you thinking? You know, I didn't have that or, I, because jazz is really about that, right? Like go sing this song. So, so I'm very fortunate in that regard that I didn't have that kind of voice in the back of my head going, you know? Um, and then the other thing is to have, a great arranger. So to have Art and to have Josh, you know, to really, drummer, to really have 
these band members who we very quickly go to something different also because they come out of jazz. Like, what can we do with this? How, how do we, how can we say something different? And you know, that, that thing we do acoustic smashing, right. Where we're putting two tunes together, you know, like we do my funny Valentine with back in black from ACDC. And, you know, part of that came out of, or that was the first one of those we ever did. And how that came to be was kind of exactly what you're saying, right? Like my funny Valentine, like really, do we really need another person singing this song? Like, it's a great tune. It's an awesome tune. And so there's part of me that was like, it's a fantastic tune. Why should I stay away from that song? Just because I'm not Ella Fitzgerald or who, you know, whomever. And then there's, you know, there's also this element of what, what can we do that's different to it? Well, that was, certainly, that was certainly different. And it was Valentine's Day and we had a gig. And it was like, okay, we're going to have to sing that song. What are we going to do? And Art started playing Back in Black. And I'm like, that's awesome. Like... <sighs> So I think arranging, you know, so for instance, the REM tune is really, a, a, you know, so many ways, it's a you know, bossa nova. Um, so I think because we come out of jazz, we automatically are always looking at how many different ways can we play this and which way to, feels the most like us or which, what, what fits the, the moment. You recorded Smashed for the Holidays. Why? <laughs> well, that's a good question, you know. Uh, well, we had been doing those Smash tunes and, you know, putting one or two of those, of, 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 of this, what I call acoustic smashing, where I'm singing the melody and lyrics of one song from one genre and the band is playing the groove of a, uh, of another tune, another genre, like a rock song or something. So we'd been doing that and this idea of a holiday album that was smashed, but not totally smashed, you know, so it's about half the songs are smashed. Um, so, and I, of course, I like the title. Yes. And people have been asking me for a holiday album, especially since I'd been, as I said, you know, putting a holiday song on just about all my records. God knows why, but I did. Um <laughs> So we kind of, you know, kind of already had that. Um, some of those tunes ready to go. Uh, I'll tell you a funny Smash for the Holidays story, which is that um, I lived in Hayes Valley here in San Francisco for many, many years. And um, they changed the, they, they built a park in the middle of this little area of town that I lived in. And uh, you had to kind of go around the park in a different way in the car. And anyway, there was a long story to say that I got pulled over for making a turn that I wasn't supposed to make. And this was right around the, just after that record had come out. And I'm only two blocks from my house. I get pulled over and I'm like, oh, man. And the guy asked, the police officer asks me if I, you know, for my ID. And I don't have my, I don't have my driver's license. I don't know why. I just don't. And he said, do you have anything with your picture on it. And I said, I, I, well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the only thing I had was that album that said smash for the holidays. And he was like, he said, really? I said, yeah. And he's like, yeah, you're getting a ticket. (laughs) 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 So yeah, it really did happen. Um, so, you know, yeah. Somebody asked me recently if there was going to be a, Smash for the holiday two, or would that be two smashed for the holidays? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> Are you a Christmas music person? I am. I, 
I, I often don't think that I am, but then when it rolls around, I'm so happy to, to sing those tunes. I'm actually thinking that in, if we're all still in our homes making music in July, that maybe I'll do a Christmas in July home to home. Because just once a year doesn't seem, some of those tunes are just so beautiful. And to only get to sing them once a year or, you know, during that month doesn't seem like enough. Yeah. I mean, you do you do a, a, a beautiful version of uh, the Christmas song. And, and tell me from a singer's perspective what a song like that offers you. Wow, what a nice question. Yeah, I love singing that song. It's space. Uh, you know, we take that tune both live and I think on the record pretty slow. And so it kind of affords me the ability to sing early or sing late, you know, the phrase I can listen. And it, it affords me the time to listen, to really listen to maybe what art plays on the piano and then kind of comment on that in my own phrasing. Um, so, yeah, space, the final frontier. <laughs> <laughs> Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe help to make the season bright. What do you think makes that makes those songs so open to possibility? Because I mean, part of what drew me into this as a subject to you know to explore is the fact that so many musicians found interesting places to go with them. And, and I end up finding new appreciations for musicians. Uh, I have to say that although as many people point at Harry Connick Jr.'s first Christmas album, uh, you know, when he was in his most, in his sort of, you know, Sinatra mode, he, he did one probably about five or six years ago that really made me appreciate him as an arranger. And yeah. that there is just such an incredibly smart, unpredictable version of Holly Jolly Christmas. Mm. Uh, and that has that that finds a way to get around the silliness of the title and gives it a solid musical gravity, a real strong percussive motor. And I had just walked away from this thinking about what a remarkable arranger he was for figuring out such inventive things to do with these mu with these songs and things that were inventive and smart for him as well as a musician. And, you know, and again, from a musician's perspective, I, I like, what do you hear in these songs and what do they offer? What, or why are they so plastic, so open to possibility? I think part of it is that, you know, this, if, if you're talking about these songs, like that so many of us know, okay. Uh, you know, even if we don't think we know them, we know them. Even if we didn't grow up with them, we know them, right? Um, they're good songs. They're good. So most of them are good, solid, well-crafted, beautiful tunes. And I think the the element about them musically is that they feel nostalgic. Like sometimes we will do a song... Or I'll, or, or I'll write a song that's not a holiday song, but it has a holiday feel. Moon River. Moon River has this nostalgia about it. That's, that's like my favorite song, Moon River. You know, that I feel like if I sing it just right, it feels a little like a Christmas tune. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I mean, in a, in a weird way, this is a very interesting conversation because in a strange way, I think I'm always trying to make every song into a holiday song. Oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get that. I'm trying to evoke that 
feeling and heart with people, that connection with people, that shared experience that we feel around the holidays, you know, or around Christmas songs or holiday music that brings us together, brings us closer, you know? And so these extremely well-known songs, because you don't have to explain the song anymore, everybody knows the tune, you can really just focus on, well, what? Am, what, what how can I bring... How can I connect with somebody in this song? How can this become a shared experience? So maybe I'm always playing Christmas music. <laughs> 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 I, just, I just didn't know it. Oh, that's great. What was? Do you have early Christmas music memories? Oh sure, yeah. We um, well, my parents collected. Um, they were a bit eccentric. My parents. Uh, maybe everyone says that about their parents. I don't know. My parents, um, they were a lot older. I'm the youngest of seven kids. Um, and they collected automated musical instruments. And in particular, they collected player pianos. We had like a Nickelodeon. And you kind of had to, it was kind of like a maze walking through our house. Um, but we had all these player pianos and we had piano rolls. So, you know, that's a lovely memory sitting and singing with my sisters at the piano with a piano roll. I mean, the bad news is I ne- didn't never learn how to play the piano, <laughs> but, but uh, the good news was I heard a lot of these songs certainly. And then I grew up Catholic um, for went to Catholic schools and did all of that. So there's a lot of those, you know, kind of well, I'll say very Christian songs, certainly. Um, so there's that element of holiday music on smash for the holidays. You know, we, there are actually a few of those very Christian tunes kind of mixed with Led Zeppelin, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah, I think that those are incredible memories. Just that, you know, again, a shared experience, right? Sitting around and singing holiday tunes with my sisters at a player piano and, you know, Speeding it up, you know, we'd get in trouble because we you could hit the tempo bar, you know, a little lever from a night, you know, most of them were like from the 1920s or something, you know, and you could speed it up and make it go really fast. Anyway, good memories. just mentioned uh three songs with Led Zeppelin uh one Leonard Skinner Sweet Home Alabama and you also go back to the Kinks and Father Christmas why it 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 feels like you you went a long way to connect Christmas music with arena rock and I was wondering if there was a relationship in there or 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 why kind of you made these really you know sort of especially especially with with Zeppelin and and uh Leonard Skinner, why you're connecting this sort of big rock with Christmas songs. I think it's more that when we do that smashing thing, arranging, using that tool, I'll say it is, um, I feel like the more different they are, the better. Uh, the more well-known they are, the better, and the more different they are, the better. So if you, you know, the litmus test being, well, if you know one of the tunes or both of the tunes or none of the tunes, it should still be enjoyable. <laughs> you know, right. that's the goal. So I think that there's that. Um, and kind of, I mean, that doing Smash for the Holidays certainly allowed us to do that in a more do that even with more fun consequences. I guess that's the way to say it. Um, and so, indeed, those are really those are really different. But but you know, it's funny, right? When you talk, we use that word anthemic. I mean, so many when we talk about nostalgic, well-known Christmas tunes, we're talking about 
holiday anthems. I mean, that's what those are, right? So why not put a holiday anthem with a big arena rock anthem? Like, those are very similar in yeah. some ways. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. Uh, you just said something I really wanted to pick up on because I was going to ask you about this. You just said that one of the things that's, that's important is that, people, is that, is that the, the, songs or the song you're smashing with is well-known. And, and I have thoughts about this, but, but why is it important from your perspective? Well, first of all, because the... One of the reasons, as I mentioned, I think for doing that, that 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 technique of arranging for us came about was because I wanted to address these very well-known songs, meaning the melody and the lyrics of the tune that I'm singing. Wanted to address those tunes in a new way. And under the best circumstances, try and connect people maybe with those songs who wouldn't normally hear that song. So while that may not be true in the holiday case, um, you know, there are a lot of other tunes that we do in that, in that way. So this idea of picking tunes that are both well-known from different genres and putting them together invites both listener, the listener of both those tunes who may know one or both of those tunes to kind of may actually introduce them into a song or to a genre that they didn't previously know. Uh, and then the other piece of that is that, quite frankly, you know, the, it's that the it's the it's the driving baseline a lot of the times from the other tune that I'm not singing. That is the well known piece of the tune that people identify with. So the groove of the tune, you hear that groove, or you hear that, you know. Uh, or you hear that lick and, and you instantly know what it is, even if you don't hear, even, even, if, even if I'm not singing the melody of that song. So, so, there's, so the better known that is, I mean, we as musicians, we might hear things uh, more subtle. You know, for, 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 for instance, on, on, on The Long Game, we've got a, a more subtle smash that's a ballad, two ballads. Now, it, it, it never entered my mind and Fix You. Only some people are going to know what we're doing. Whereas when we're talking about using two very well-known tunes, most people can grasp what we're doing and hear what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's sort of the answer. Yeah. I tell you where I was coming from and I was asking, thinking about the question is I've always thought part of the po- almost part of the point of a cover is that the, the audience needs to know it because then the audience can think about what you've just done. And yes. so like if you cover side, you know, you know, track three, side two, people may not know what that song is. And so, you know, an obscure REM song, you you may do a beautiful job of it. You may do an amazing transformation of it. And who knows? Whereas if you take a, take a well-known song, people can appreciate what you bring to the table. Absolutely, and, and I would imagine in the case of smashing, especially smashing, smashing up arena rock and Christmas, it in, it invites you to think about what's the relationship here. How does you know how how are the pieces in conversation, and how are the elements in conversation in addition to just you know cueing people in? That's absolutely right, and I think in those cases, you know. The, the smashing element as opposed to simply covering a tune, right? Um, I don't mean simply. That's not always easy. But um, is that, you know, one of the important things for us, we came up with all these rules, or, or I don't know, maybe I came up with all these rules for smashing. But, you know, they should really be able to pl- play that song. You know, we're not looping. We're not picking spots. We're not quoting. They, we are really referencing, you know, they are playing that song. Uh, the band is playing that tune. So this whole concept that, wow, you know, some people who really hear what we're doing are like, wow, those are the same chords. Like, that's the same chord structure. I mean, they're vastly reharmonized, so don't get me wrong. You know, this is a... But, but, but that's why they work together. And then, like, that's so interesting to me, you know, that a tune from 
the 70s and a tune from the 40s have the same chord structure. Like, that's a trip. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of cool, just in and of itself. So people that want to delve deeper into it on that, you know, level do, you know. Um, but I think you're absolutely right about covers. I mean, and I've been there. I've been to that. I've been there where I've gone, wow, this is a beautiful tune. I love this really obscure tune. Actually, that's really funny because maybe it was a Tom Petty song. That's really funny. Um, and I saw something so crafted and sing it live. And it's just kind of like people don't really know the tune. You know, it was kind of a deep cover, you know, and <laughs> it's a little too under, a little too deep of a cover. <laughs> under, it was undercover. <laughs> And they're like, oh, that was interesting. Like they thought, I did I did I write it or what was it or you know? It's like, okay, that didn't really work. Yeah. When I was small, I believed in Santa Claus, though I knew it was my dad, and I would up my stocking at Christmas Open my presents and I'd be glad But the last time I played Father Christmas I stood outside a department store A gang of kids they came over and mugged me and knocked my reindeer to the floor They said, Father Christmas, give us some money Don't mess around with those silly toys We'll beat you up if you don't So, one of the reasons that inspired this on the on uh, the record is your version of uh, Father Christmas by the Kinks. It, what did you pair that with? That is not a smash. Oh, tune, really? Actually, Father Christmas is um, just a completely rearranged, uh, obviously, very rearranged version, a ballad version to some degree. Um, that was a tune that my mastering engineer, I think that's how this came to be, Michael Romanowski, he, um, he said, Hey, you should do father Christmas. And I'm like, wow, that's so out. Like, I don't know. And I listened to it and then I really listened to the lyrics and I, that, that happens a lot. I I may take a tune like, or, uh, yeah, father Christmas, or we do a version of miss you, um, from the Stones, you know, these tunes that maybe w- w- we all know and we love, but like, what are they really saying? You know, what's really going on there? And then to really take apart and look at the lyrics or the REM tune, you know, and it's like, so it's quite a story, the Father Christmas tune. I'm like, well, that's a dark, t- that's like a ballad. You know, that's a, that's a story. So to take that and really uh, change it I- I- into that. I found that really fascinating because you know, I'm so used to Ray Davies, class conscious, sort of confrontational, you know, really, you know, you know, a bit of a takedown of Christmas and Santa. And to hear it as you sing it, that there are still strong nostalgic undercurrents and that there's a warmth to it that I was like, I'm not sure I see where this comes from, but I love that this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. I don't know if I, I don't know, but huh. Yeah, that's good. I'll take that. You know, I think that's, I, that's a really good, I think that what you just said, that's what I look for. I look for what aspect of a song maybe is being undertold that's there that strikes me as maybe a very important element of the tune, but maybe was not what was accentuated, accentuated. Right. So, um, 
whether that's lyrics or melody or particular, you know, particularities about the tune. Um, and then how can I play those up and play the other things down? So this is a kind of a sidetrack here, but it occurred to me while listening to these, what's your uh, copyright royalty obligation when you're doing, uh, when you're smashing songs? Well, I go a little overboard. I buy, I buy both tunes. Okay. So I, I, yeah. I mean, it's a good question, right? On Smashed for the Holidays, I mean, this is an interesting question. On that album, I was like, wow, if I were to really do a whole album of Smashed songs, that's going to be very expensive in terms of licensing. But to do half the songs, is, and it's also not really the story I want to tell. I don't want to end up being the Smashed queen known only for my Smashing. Sure. I don't want to only be Smashing. <laughs> um, so, you know, there was that. Uh, and it was interesting because what I hadn't anticipated is that indeed some of those old, old holiday tunes are fair use and you don't have to, you know, so, so that's interesting. You know, they don't have a, you don't have to pay a licensing fee on some of those very old songs. So, so that was an interesting thing I hadn't scripted, like, um, forgetting which tune, uh, one of those actual Christian sounding tunes, um, so that was uh, that was an interesting. So it, it actually turned out to be about the same licensing cost as a regular album, is what I'm getting. Okay. At. Yeah, this always interests me because I don't think you can, you know, to my mind, part of what interests me so much about Christmas music is that on one hand, you know, it is clearly someone's art. If it's got my attention, it's someone's art. But at the same time, it's art aimed very much at a specific marketplace. And for a month. Yeah. And I've ta- and I've talked to a number of musicians for whom their their choices for what to do were in part based on what they could afford. And that there were, you know, they did the they did X many public domain songs because they were public domain. And uh and that, that made it if they had to, as you say, they had to pay uh, pay licensing on everything. They, they couldn't afford to make it. And that's just part of the reality, the financial reality of making Christmas music. Yes, it is. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for was um, public domain. I think I said fair use. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a concern. I, I try not to think too much about that. But then when, I, when push comes to shove, you know, let's say I have a 17-song <laughs> album and I want to get to 14, and I'm looking at the balance of the songs, you know, that's a big one in terms of the balance of the songs. But also I do look at that for sure. Sure. Well, and I'd imagine there comes a point where like our, what is what we're doing with this so cool. It's worth the money I have to lay out. Yeah. (laughs) Better be. Yeah. Better be really something you want to say (laughs) (laughs) differently. So one last piece I wanted to pick up here in this conversation you also do a great version of Happy Christmas War is Over. And, you know, we've kind of talked about a little bit about how, you know, about how, you know, you, you approach songs and your relationship to lyric and how, how different pieces talk to each other. But I wonder, do you think about how you sort of relate to the singer, your relationship to the, you know, when you're, when you're, singing you know uh someone else's song i mean you mentioned when you were singing bowie uh you know how in space oddity but i wonder like when you were singing john lennon were you thinking about your about lennon about the musical choices he was making i i think it comes in every once in a while but not so consciously but what did strike me, and this often happens, whether I'm looking at a tune from the 30s or I'm looking at a tune from the 60s, um, you know, I, I think what, it, what happens is I look at, wow, that's still so timely. So I do think about that. Like, here's, here's somebody that was writing these words. You know, like Marvin Gaye tunes are perfect for that, right? You look and go, God, we're still really... Do we, we're still singing about the same things? Yes. The human condition and the, you know, longing for something to be better and different. It's like, 
you know, yes, we are. Yeah. Do you get a moment to reflect on, you know, as you're, you know, at some point while you're working, do you get a moment to reflect on Lennon as a singer or, or, or is that as a vocal performance when, you know, when you're hearing his and deciding what you want to do? You know, that's a very, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I think that you can't help but do that as a singer in, in some ways. Um, but again, I think there's that, I think usually what I'm doing is I'm looking at melody, lyrics, and arrangement. Mm-hmm. So for instance, on Happy Christmas War is Over, you know, there's this whole outro that we do, this whole layering thing that I do there, that we do there, and this whole other melody kind of came. And I've often thought, wow, I might take that melody and write a whole other song around that melody that I sang on the outro of the, write this improvised thing. So I think once it gets to the point where it, maybe the first few times I'm really listening to a tune and picking it apart, I definitely want to make sure that I can sing the melody as the person. That's important to me. Even, I, I should say that too, even when we're smashing tunes, I am always singing the melody the way the songwriter wrote it. Now, I don't mean to say I sing it exactly the way every version you've heard of it, but the way on paper the melody is written, I most of the time am singing that at least the first time through. And that's important to me, to honor that. So when the, in the case where the, the singer is the songwriter, uh, I'm definitely listening to that to try and complement that, not take something away from it. I think that's really important. You know, really, that's something that's always, I would say that's a kind of almost a pet peeve that I have. You know, if someone took the time to write a great tune and you're going to sing it, uh, you better learn the damn tune. <laughs> yeah. you, you can change it later, but uh, honor the tune at least the first time through the head, through the, through the end, the first time through. Um, that's important. Jackie for the time and the talk. I really enjoyed that conversation and I'm glad we found time for it. You can find Smashed for the Holidays and her new album, The Long Game, wherever you get music. I'll link to them at Amazon in the show notes because if you pick them up there, you help support 12 songs. Thanks as always to AF the Naysayer for the theme music and thanks to you for listening. If you haven't already done so, subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple person, be a sport and throw us some stars in a review. That helps others find out about 12 songs. We'll wrap up today with one more from Cascade and Cascade Christmas. This is his version of Santa Baby with singer Jane XO. Talk to you next week.